Welcome to The Marketing Commute, a podcast that explores the roads taken and lessons learned for the best and brightest in marketing today. I'm Mike Boyd and joining me on The Commute this time are Andrew Baxter, Senior Advisor at KPMG Australia. Hi Mike. Carmen Becker, Partner at KPMG Australia who leads their CMO advisory practice. Good afternoon. And joining us later in the episode is Professor Vince Mitchell with The Marketing Minute. In this episode of The Marketing Commute, we sit down with Michelle Hutton. Michelle, until recently, was Managing Director of Global Client Strategy at Edelman, based in the UK, and has recently returned home to take up the role as CEO of Edelman Australia. She was also President of the PR Jury at this year's Khan Lion. We're very lucky to have her in the studio with us today and look forward to talking about her journey. All right, let's go. So what's caught our eye this week? I thought it was really interesting to share a um, Can Lions Grand Prix winner, The Tampon Book, which is a book against tax discrimination for the female company. And the female company is a um, German startup and an organic tampon brand. And what they've done is rail against this idea that women pay tax on tampons at a much higher rate than tax on books. Books are only taxed at 7% in Germany, whilst feminine hygiene products are taxed at a luxury tax rate of 19% such a luxury to have to use um, feminine hygiene products and to buy them every month as as well. So what they did was basically um, put the tampons inside a book and sell them as a book, therefore reducing the luxury tax So um, to a book tax. So a fantastic piece of work by Schultz and Friends out of Berlin and that won the Grand Prix. So that really caught my eye. And for me, similarly interesting, wanting to talk to Michelle about crisis management. And I think one of the things that um, caught my eye was around e-cigarettes and Juul and and allegations about them and how they've promoted them up until now and what they're allowed to say in the future. And I think, you know, a lot of these uh, newer types of categories that are coming out um, and and marketing themselves quite heavily and then finding um, that there potentially are issues down the track, I'd just be really interested to hear her thoughts on that. And it it was interesting to read that article. The one that jumped out at me was Kellogg's partnering with Glad for this uh, anti-bullying campaign, and they've released a limited run of cereal called the All Together Cereal, which I must admit was a bit of a dream of mine as a child, where you sort of they've combined six different varieties of cereal, so cornflakes, Fruit Loops, rice bubbles, and so forth. But it's all about actually bring it together under this whole sort of LGBTQ advocacy and you know done it in a very very clever way that's going to appeal to a sort of a, a whole broad spectrum of the community and then you know to really put some money behind it Kellogg's has then donated $50,000 to Glad's future sort of anti-bullying and advocacy efforts which I think is fantastic. So Carmen I just want to circle back to that that tampon book I mean that that's just a fantastic example of, of PR ingenuity. I don't think it's brilliant. Yeah, I don't know how much women actually spend on tampons a year. That would be a really interesting thing to understand. But getting taxed at 19% on something that's slightly unavoidable feels criminal. Is, is that a global thing? Like is that tax something that's reflected around the world? It certainly is. Interesting. I really like the book idea too, just the almost hiding things in book. I remember one of the telcos, I think it might have been Vodafone a few years ago, um, created a book that you could hide your mobile phone in. So if you, you wanted to sneakily watch the cricket or watch football or something on your phone, you <laughs> pretended to read a book while it was embedded inside the book. doesn't have quite the same level of, um, you know, no, higher depth. order importance <laughs> as the tampon tax, but... <laughs> I, I, I get your cloak and dagger sort of, um, yes. Another clever book idea. The most fantastic thing about this campaign is that 
not only did it win a Grand Prix, but actually because of the impact of this campaign, the tampon tax in Germany is now being debated. So it brings to life this key point that creativity can change the world. This week's guest is Michelle Hutton, who's been working at global communications firm Edelman for almost a decade. From 2010 to 2014, she served as the company's Australian CEO before relocating to the UK, where she served in a number of international roles, including as Managing Director of Global Client Strategy. In the middle of this year, Michelle returned to Sydney to resume her previous role as Australian CEO, along with a new role as Edelman's Chief Growth Officer in the Asia-Pacific region. She also served as the president of the PR jury at this year's prestigious Canline International Festival of Creativity. And we're very lucky to have her here in the studio today. Michelle Hutton, welcome to the Marketing Commute. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, before we get stuck into your career, I just thought it might be worth you just telling us a little bit about Edelman and and what they do. Well, we're quite a unique company in the marketing services mix. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we are an independent, privately owned family-run business of scale. So we're the world's largest communications agency run by Richard Edelman. His father, Dan Edelman, founded the company 67 years ago in Chicago and had this vision of perhaps one day going global. And uh, he sure did that. So I'm working for a very unique business in a unique industry, I think, as part of the marketing services mix now. Going right back, what, what kick-started your marketing career? Where did, it, where did it all start out? So I studied marketing and communications. I probably didn't really know what I was getting myself into at the time, but I studied communications at what was then uh, QIT in, in Brisbane and came out the other end with a communications degree. I focused on not just PR, but advertising and marketing and came out the other end uh, with a degree. In fact, I remember we were in a lecture once and um, we had a a guest lecturer come in from the AMP Society and he gave this great lecture and, you know, at the end he said, oh, and by the way, I'm looking for some graduates. And some friends uh, of mine, we sort of looked at each other and thought, we're going to have to get a job one day, you know, maybe maybe we apply, maybe we give this this thing a go and, you know, just see how we roll. So, you know, I I put myself forward and I remember when I was offered the job, I went home and I said, I was still living at home and I said to my dad, oh my God, you know, I've been offered this job. What do I do? I haven't finished my degree. You know, I can't start work. I I haven't finished a degree. And, you know, the best advice my father's ever given me is, uh, you're going to take the job mm. and you'll finish your degree part-time, which yeah. is which is what I did. So I started my, my career journey working for the AMP Society. Marketing gives such a good foundation, studying marketing, doesn't it, for a lot of things that come in your career. Yeah, it really, you know, for me, that particular course um, being what it was and what I think it still is now, it produces graduates who can hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. You know, we learnt all sorts of technical skills around production, around uh, content creation, which of course way back then was very different to what that means (laughs) now. Um, But, you know, we came out the other end with some core practical skills as well as an understanding of brand and marketing. So I think that that certainly set me up well. And then once you got through all of that, um, through AMP Society, what, when did your career really start to accelerate and take off? Really, I think the big shift for me was when I left client side 
and I went into agency. And, you know, for me, that was really the moment where I discovered this whole other part of the marketing services world that I hadn't really experienced up mm. until that mm. point. And I, I haven't looked back since. You know, I've, I've, I've grown up in agencies. It's in my blood. I, I love it. So, yeah, I think that was, that was a key moment for me, moving from client side into agency. So I'm one of these perhaps unusual um, people or, or my, my career path is somewhat different in that I started client side and went agency and I've stayed in agency and I've had the good fortune to have lots of career opportunities at um, or in the agency world. There's a lot of talk about people leaving agencies right now. What would you say to those that are thinking about leaving because of the industry and where it's going? So this is a hot topic. Mm. And what I've learnt is that I think Australia is quite unique in that trend. Having just spent the last you know, five years abroad, agency careers, I think, in other markets are held in very high esteem. And, you know, particularly in the world of communications, if you are agency side and a senior agency leader, your counsel is enormously valued client side. And returning to Australia, I've been somewhat disappointed by the fact that careers in agencies in this market are still not put on that same pedestal. And, and, and I'm struggling to work out why. You know, my personal journey and experience has been nothing but rewarding. So I would, to answer your question, I, I would really challenge people to think about careers in agency. I, I hope that I'm a, a good role model mm. to that end, that you can have mobility opportunities. You know, I, I, I moved my husband and two children to London and back again. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to do also sideways moves in my mm. career, which I think is enormously important for everyone today to, to, to think differently about how our journeys go. It's not all about going up. Mm. I think, you know, the more companies, client side and, and, and agencies flatten their structures and become more nimble and agile, I think we all need to think differently about our career journeys. It's not always going to be up, up, up. Yes. Sideways can be fun. Mm. Yeah. I get the sense and, and someone at an industry event on Friday was talking about it around work for your agency, not the holding company. The holding companies seem to be a disproportionate level of importance. Yeah. So having worked for a holding company and now not working for one, mm. um, yeah, I can see that that is a, an important distinction. Um, but but I, would, I would encourage people to think about agencies offering innovation, mm. agencies offering test and learn opportunities for its people. And at the end of the day, from my experience, being in an agency means that you are surrounded by your tribe. Yes. By, by wonderfully creative people looking to see how communications and marketing can help solve business problems and help make the world a better place. And I think when you go client side, your tr tribe is very different. And I think, you know, for those of us who are passionate about the role, as I say, that, that brand building and reputation management means for businesses today, I think being agency side, you can 
really make a huge difference to how companies perform. And I think that can be really rewarding. Just quickly, on the whole Australia or APAC and UK, the differences you were talking about before, are there any other major differences that you, you've, you came across in that five years that you spent in the UK? Yes, I think there are lots of differences. And I think one observation is that Australia continues to produce fabulous work and fabulous talent. And I think sometimes we forget that. And, you know, on the global stage, from my experience, people, whether they be agency side or client side, are very intrigued by Australia as a market. They don't really understand much about our market. They know it's a developed market in the world of marketing and communications. They know that we continually win in Cannes and mm. in other festivals. They, they really are incredibly intrigued. They don't really know who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. Mm. But they know we're really good. But they know yeah. we're really good. It's always like there's something really cool and amazing happening mm. in that market, but we have no idea what it is. And and it's a good calling card to have. It isn't is. It? it is. And I, I think, you know, it's a confidence booster and it should be. Billy, I think one of the other observations has been that there seems to be a better camaraderie, I think, in some other markets. People are more supportive of people's work and, you know, you're really interested in celebrating other people's work. I'm not sure that that has progressed here in Australia. Mm. I think, you know, we're still sadly interested in critiquing and maybe on occasion bringing down people's work. Yes. You know, mm. I, so I, I enjoyed being part of a, a market where it didn't matter who you were. It was all about the work and it was all about just celebrating our industry. And I really hope that we can address that here as an industry. Part of my experience in London was this volume of people and volume of business enabled a much wider platform for you to express your ideas. You know, there was room for everybody. Yeah. Which yeah. really did help, I think. I think that helps. Mm. Mind you, of course, in Australia, there's nowhere to hide. No. Mm. <laughs> so speaking of camaraderie, it's a really nice segue into the, into the next question. We often need mentors to help us along the way um, with career d decisions and directions. Who, who have been some of yours and how have they helped? Well, I, I've been quite fortunate in my career that I have quite actively surrounded myself with mentors. Somebody quite early on in my career gave me advice that surrounding myself with a, a circle of trust would hold me in good stead. And that's proven to be spot on. So I, quite early on in my career, actively sought out quite a diverse circle of people, people who either knew me well, and in some instances, people who didn't. And I've used that circle of trust on many, many occasions mm. to mm. test decisions, to ask advice on all sorts of different questions that I've been grappling with over the years. So I, I'm a massive believer in mentorship, but I would really encourage people to think about this concept of a circle of trust. You know, where mm. are your trusted advisors that mm. can help you in your journey? Because it's it can be a tough one. And do you tell them they're your trusted advisor? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do. How do they respond to that? Most 
positively. <laughs> you know, some have some have said real. You know, que- questioned my decisions, but but I've quite actively changed that group as well and and I'm quite open about that that people come and go and and I've actually on one occasion I brought the group together because there were people from different cities and anyway we all happened to be in the same place at the same time and um and sort of hosted this get together and um they were really surprised by the other people <laughs> that were part That's of this group. They thought they were they thought alone. They, yeah, they totally <laughs> did. They totally did. Who are these people? What's they going were like, on? well, we thought it was us. Yes. Um, but I really tested, I think, some of my mentors as well over the years. Um, but to be honest, I think equally they have got a lot out of that relationship mm-hmm. as well. And, and this concept of a circle of trust, I know some of them have taken into their own careers. So I think there are lots of circles out there. I hope there are anyway. And <laughs> having a circle of trust, having people around you that can help, clearly there's been, there have been some challenging moments in your career. Have, have, have any sort of stood out that then, you know, examples of kind of then where that circle of trust has really, you know, helped you? You know, one was when I was grappling with the decision of mobility, you know, when I had this opportunity that my um, agency Edelman put to me, which you know was Richard Edelman, he said, you know, let's get you out of Australia and let's see where 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 we can where we can take you. And making those decisions when it's a family decision, mm. I really I really struggled with that. And you know that circle of trust helped me and my family make that decision. And you know that was that was a decision that we didn't take lightly, but one that we absolutely have no regrets about. Equally, there was a decision once that I had to make about a particular client project that I, I was struggling with at the time. N- not so much from a capability standpoint, it was more from a relationship standpoint. And, and I used two of the people in that circle of trust to help me think through different scenarios and to role play different ways that I could do a better job of dealing with that particular client situation. Speaking of client situations, one of the things that always comes up when we talk about communications is crisis communications and what to do, how to know one when how to know when one is coming and what do you do when it arrives? All good questions. Mm. And look, in today's world, what what is a crisis and how to manage a crisis has fundamentally changed. You know, the world we live in today means that there is nowhere to hide, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that everyone has an important point of view and they can share it. They have a voice. So, you know, we like to talk about, if you think about the pyramid of influence, you know, in years gone by, companies, brands, people in positions of power could tell the masses what to do at any one time. You know, now that's inverted, right? Everyone's got a point of view. So, you know, companies today need to be prepared for full transparency. And I think that changes the dynamic of how companies promote and protect their brands mm-hmm. today. And the two have become intrinsically linked. You know, you can't you can't manage your brand without managing your, your reputation. The two really go hand in hand now. So the world of issues preparedness and crisis management is fundamentally changed. And do you think Australian companies are providing that transparency compared to what you've seen overseas? Good question. Um, Yes, I think on the whole they they have. And I guess the 
financial services market is perhaps mm. a good one to to think about. You know how they've had to go about actively rebuilding trust post royal commission. Absolutely, yes. and you know I think that many of them have started on that journey, mm. and I think most, if not all, of them have done it well you know I think that in years to come that will be a great case study I think on you know how to be more authentic how to be more transparent how companies and more importantly leaders of the companies have to behave and will be held accountable for company actions and ways of working. Mm, actually, that's an interesting point. We've seen more and more the personal lives of leaders coming into their reputation as a company leader. Have you worked with lots of examples of that or do you coach CEOs on how to handle that? Yeah, we do. And, you know, on the whole, it's authentic leadership today is about showing your vulnerability. <laughs> and um, to quote Brene Brown, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's true. And I think, you know, in the executive world, you know, we, we do spend a lot of time with leaders throughout organisations to arm them with the confidence, perhaps to be open and transparent. And, you know, it's, it's okay to say that you don't know. <laughs> I think that's enormously important. And then the, the trust barometer that you produce, that's a um, very highly regarded document and well uh, quoted across the market. Could you tell us a little bit about it? So we're about to go into market uh, or into field, I should say, uh, globally with what will be our 20th year of the study. And, you know, I think that says a lot about Richard Edelman's vision. You know, 20 years ago, he, he thought there's something in this concept of trust. Hmm. <laughs> and, and, and he predicted, I guess, in many respects, the fact that trust would become such a fundamentally important part of not just business, but society. So it has been year on year um, a great adventure for us as, a, as an agency to explore how people's relationships with a variety of different institutions, whether it be business, government, media or NGOs has changed over the years. And, you know, each year it's held in, you know, high anticipation even internally to see what the findings will be. Mm -hmm. I think that the results of this next study will be quite extraordinary. So each year, Richard launches the study at Davos. So we uh, launch the global results there, and then we cascade the the local market launches. You know, one thing that we've done differently over the last few years is we've actually developed a, on the back of the barometer now, a methodology to measure trust in companies. And we are currently looking at developing a model to measure trust in brands. And Richard and the team will launch that at Cannes next year. So I think, you know, this concept of trust in the world of marketing, it begs the question, could brand trust be more important than brand love? And mm. if so, what does that mean? And how do we as marketers perhaps think differently about how we build and manage relationships with, with people? You can trust many, but you normally love few. So it's an interesting, interesting concept, isn't yeah. it? And what do you see in ASPAC in the in this region in the um, trust barometer? Are there any key themes that we can apply to our everyday businesses here and across um, the Asia Pacific region? So there's a few things. You know, one is that there's there's growing trust in 
micro-influences, growing trust in the way that people are understanding and creating empathy with micro-influences. So, you know, we're moving away from trust in YouTube big name influencers, but the micro-influencers, people like ourselves, are enormously trusted. I think that one of the interesting trends of late is the good job that the media institutions have done in rebuilding trust. You know, a few years back, media lost trust Mm. across the board. But that has been rebuilt, particularly in traditional media. I mean, a few years back, of course, the study really identified the impact of fake news. Mm. But of late, I think media have done a brilliant job in in rebuilding trust. And we've certainly seen that in, in, in Australia of late. And do you think because fake news is in the sort of world of digital, how have um, these news companies been able to do that, to actually rebuild that trust? I think in a few ways, you know, one, they're standing up and having a point of view. I mean, one of the other interesting findings in the trust barometer has been that people have lost trust in governments all around the world and they're now turning to either business or media to say okay you you now need to step up and help rebuild whatever it might be in society that needs fixing and I think there are lots of examples of media organizations and media titles that are doing just that they're perhaps being a little disruptive in how they do that but they're standing up and 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 saying this is not good enough. And you know, I I saw in Cannes, um, you know, this year there was some brilliant creative work entered by media titles from some surprising markets. Really enormously emotional storytelling that media companies are doing around the world to say we will help create a conversation around things that need fixing and need fixing now. And I think that's also where business leaders today, right? I mean, the the study clearly shows that people are saying all around the world, if you are a leader, we expect you now to stand up, have a point of view, use your voice for good, Mm -hmm. and make some change. There's a company called Nextdoor. So it's taking on Facebook groups. And it's all about having your community, as in your neighbourhood, next door, your next door neighbours, and it's all about so creating a social network around that. But the key thing that they do is they validate who you are, where you live, they actually get your neighbours to validate. So this whole idea of trust comes in at the ground floor. <laughs> I love that. Michelle, was there anything else that can, you know, when you were the president of the PR jury this year, anything else that stood out, any outstanding work? One of the observations that, that I made this year is the power of earned storytelling. And, you know, we we went into the judging this year in the PR category looking for work that had been very clearly designed with earned input. So, you know, we weren't looking for work that was perhaps amplifying a great advertising idea. You know, we wanted to find work that was intrinsically designed with earned at the core storytelling. And, it was, a, it was such a delight to see that there is a lot of work now that I would call communications-led marketing. It's work where you know, companies and brands are recognising that in today's world, they need to earn the right to be a part of a conversation. And 
I think with that type of construct, a different type of work comes. And the work also from some of the smaller markets and surprising markets, Jordan being one, was extraordinary. Really fabulous work from from that market. And that was mind-blowing. The other theme that I saw come through in the work is this phrase that I learned in Cannes this year, which is adaptive, which is looking at diversity through a different lens. And uh, if you haven't seen, there's a great campaign from IKEA called uh, Thisables, really brilliant campaign that looks at how IKEA through 3D printing made their furniture pieces more accessible for people with physical disabilities. So that Eldar, Dina, can also feel comfortable in their own homes like everybody else. Now they should come up with products that assemble themselves. Microsoft entered a, a similar campaign where, again, through 3D printing, they sort of gifted the, the blueprint, if you like, the, the, the software to people to be able to, at home, print out different pieces that could be attached to the gaming equipment to, again, allow for people with physical disabilities to be able to be a part of the game. So really interesting and different ways to think about accessibility and thinking about how companies and brands can have not just a point of view, but actually do something really interesting and, and, and differently to make their products more accessible. And how creativity can Absolutely. unleash that. Totally. Totally. Michelle, you're back in Australia now and also do, managing a global role as part of that. What, what's the road look like ahead for you for the next three, five years? That's a good question. <laughs> well, it's been busy so far since I've been back, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, look, I'm I'm genuinely very excited to be home, um, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I think this is a market that is ready for some disruption and innovation. You know, my my goal is to think about you know, how we can evolve the next model of a communications agency in this market. You know, how do we use data more? Um, how do we build in analytics? You know, how do we think differently about earned creative? And how do we organize ourselves as an agency to do just that? And then Asia, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to get back into the region. In fact, I was up in Shanghai last week. It's a really exciting time to be in this region. Mm. And I think that clients and, and the marketing industry overall, I think we're well placed to do something quite extraordinary. And I'm really delighted to be back and to be a part of it. And what about a piece of advice for 20-year-old Michelle? Ah, oof. There's a lot of advice for her. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you might say that. <laughs> So on this week's Marketing Minute, yeah, I've chosen yeah, something about the biology of trust from Paul Zak, yeah, author of The Trust Factor. He argues that human brains have two neurological idiosyncrasies that allow us to trust and collaborate with people outside of our immediate social group. Something, by the way, that no other animal is capable of. This first involves the brain's outer surface, where inside planning and abstract thought largely occur and allows us to transport ourselves into someone else's mind. If I were her, I would do this kind of thinking. It lets us forecast others' actions so we are able to coordinate our behaviours with theirs. 
The second idiosyncrasy is empathy. Our ability to share people's emotions, and this is facilitated by oxytocin, which also reduces the anxiety we have when around other people and motivates us to cooperate with them and help each other. That's because oxytocin modulates dopamine, he argues, which is the feel-good collaboration and connect with others hormone. To trust some people, especially someone we're unfamiliar with, our brains then you build a model of what that person is likely to do and why. The payoff goes to both the top line and the bottom line of companies yeah, with high trust. He talks about an experiment where luxury clothing store staff had their oxytocin levels measured. Oxytocin release can be reciprocal. So if our interaction causes our brain to make oxytocin, it will typically do the same yeah, for the other person. And in fact, oxytocin release from salespeople predicted 69% of those customers who made a purchase. So trust is contagious via this mechanism and it directly increases how much shoppers actually spend. So, any thoughts on the biology of trust? Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't get more oxytocin when they go shopping? And the fact that it's contagious is absolutely amazing because the impact that that can have for an organisation that actually plans for that uh, that's what I think is the most interesting around this. How do you plan for this new finding? What what can marketers do? What can salespeople do? What can they do in store to actually plan for this and actually see if there's revenue from this for them? What isn't kind of sorted, I guess, is what are the conditions in this salesperson's environment or what can we do to their working lives to make them engender trust in you so that you can then be more trusting of me which makes you buy more. We always know that employee um, trust and employees trusting in their employer and their company is linked to brand purpose. So having a good strong brand purpose which filters right down to um, frontline staff uh, who can own it and enable it. That's, that's one thing that we know marketing can help take care of in that scenario. Absolutely. And I, I guess it's, there's something there about perhaps job security, right? If you feel secure in your job and you trust your, your organisation to do the best by you, then that's going to predispose you to then emit that trust to the people that you meet. If there's a challenge around the retail experience in today's world, where retail is becoming tougher and tougher, is there a way that you can almost preload the oxytocin before, you know, as part of whether it be online research or, you know, something else you're doing around a product. So you're almost, you've got it preloaded. So then when you go in store, you've already got a heightened level of awareness or a heightened level of that feeling before you actually make the purchase. There is a joy to shopping that you can, you can, enable and we see some retailers doing that if you look at lush and the new way they're um, sharing the ingredients they put in their products through their app so you go into their store yep. you hold the app up to the um, bliss bomb ball thing whatever it is or the soap or the shampoo and it actually has a beautiful animation that comes to life right plus the ingredient list and that makes that makes shopping very joyous and fun and fulfilling there's quite a lot in that and the staff are then left to talk to you and to be helping you rather than be worried about uh, that everything's set up in exactly the right way because there's no more labelling. But also I think trust is engendered by transparency. So what you've said is yes, we've true. got absolute transparency in terms of our production, our ingredients, yeah, our packaging. Yeah, 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 so that then could predispose the customer to trust you even more, which can then lead to increased oxytocin, which then leads to kind of... 
Correct. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right because then the ability for the three of us to have the same, go into the same store but have a unique experience that's customised to each of us, I think also means that we all can achieve what we would hope to be the highest level of oxytocin as part of that experience, even though the three of our experiences in the, in the same store could be uniquely different. But I guess what interests me about this is we, we often just think of trust as being some kind of cognitive thing, that I've got to you kind of you earn your trust by some of the things that I do and, and we can you look at that as your belief in me as a good person or whatever kind of measure of trust you do. And, and, and what this research is saying is that we are biologically predisposed to actually want to trust other people for mutual benefit. And that biological yeah, mechanism is kind of powerful, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and underlies yeah, yeah, what, what I think most of us probably think about as trust as a quite a, a cognitive belief system thing rather than a biological thing. All right, so that's it for this episode of The Marketing Commute. Thanks to our guests, Michelle Hutton from Edelman and Carmen Becker and Andrew Baxter from KPMG, to our brilliant producers, Boyd Britton and Madison Lunds, to the studios here at the University of Sydney Business School, and finally to KPMG's customer brand and marketing advisory team. The podcast can be found on all good podcast networks, such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can find The Marketing Commute on all the socials. I'm Mike Boyd. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next stop on The Marketing Commute. You have reached your destination.